Welcome to A Human Perspective, a podcast where I'll be sharing work and personal experiences and learnings. I will also chop it up with guests from time to time who will also share their own perspectives. I can't promise everything you hear on this podcast will always be right, but I can promise to always give you a human perspective. My name is Lola Ogentoken, and I'm your host. Let's go. Welcome to today's episode of A Human Perspective. Today we have Natalie Wood, who is VP of Engineering at Hokodo. The topic for today will be autism. I actually met Natalie quite a few years ago now when we were working at an organization together called Elsevier. Definitely one of the best businesses I've worked in, in terms of the way that they work. And I was generally impressed with Natalie's approach to her work. I believe you were heading up the quality engineering team at the time. That's right. One thing I really noticed about you was the level of attention to detail, how organized you were, how you were able to actually plan, strategize, roll things out. I saw you build your team in a very strategic way. And I was just super impressed with how you worked and your knowledge as well. I think it was interesting to see you develop and grow and evolve your role effectively into heading up a whole engineering team. So welcome to today's episode. Thank you very much for having me, Lola. It's lovely to reconnect with you and see you again. And I'm really pleased to be here to talk about a topic that's very close to my heart and one that I think is very important to talk about. And I'm super happy to have you here. As you know, I reached out to you because you shared a post on LinkedIn and on the post you shared two things. One was your late diagnosis of autism and secondly, sharing information, just informing people on autism overall, the language spoken around it and some recognizable traits and some traits that aren't necessarily recognizable, etc. But it was a very informative um, number of slides. And I thought, okay, I have to talk to you. I have to talk to Mm -hmm. you about this um, and get you on the show to share your knowledge and your experience with others. Before we get started, I think it would be good for people to get to know you a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm Natalie, as you said. I am currently working as VP of Engineering at Hakodo. My history in the workplace, it's fairly long, but to try to summarise it as best as I can, I started out working in technology around about 20 years ago now. I actually started more by accident than by design. My father found me a kind of an internship uh, at IBM when I finished university, and I ended up working in a speech recognition department in a research and design site, working in a small team of much older, very geeky software engineering men. From the outside in, it would look like we were very different kinds of people, but I completely fell in love with the way that their brains worked, the way that they communicated, and I felt very at home there. And despite not really thinking about that as a career pursuit before then, I knew from that moment on that I wanted to work in software engineering and particularly wanted to work with the people who do that kind 
kind of work. So I started out working more in a software testing function and then ended up moving more into management and leadership roles in that discipline. And then about six years ago, moved into more broader software engineering lead roles to managing and leading teams to currently looking after a whole department. Amazing. What would you say that journey was like for you? So I know you mentioned when you first started out in the tech space, when you did that role at IBM, you felt very aligned with the people that you were working with. Has the journey been pretty much that during your time in various companies or have there been good times and bad times as you climbed the ladder? There have definitely been times where I've suffered from a bit of imposter syndrome, right? Because particularly when I moved into the more broader engineering leadership roles, my background is not as a developer and a coder. Mm. And I always have a period of winning people over and showing them what I can do. And really my expertise lies more in around the people who do that job. That's the area I'm most passionate about and truly believe that I can bring something to teams that helps engineers do their best work. So it hasn't always been easy, but it's always felt like the right thing for me to do in terms of my skills and experience and where I feel like I can add the most value. Just going back to again why I reached out to you as mentioned something that I saw in the post that got my attention is the fact that you were recently diagnosed with autism. I think before we dive into the topic it would be good to get from you a sense of what autism is. I think we all have ideas of it wrong or right but what is autism? Autism is a really difficult thing to explain succinctly, right? Mm. Because there's so many different aspects of it. But effectively, it's a it's a different way of processing information. So it's, it's a neurological variation that is different mm. from neurotypical brains. And it comes with advantages and disadvantages. In fact, most of those disadvantages really just come from the fact that the society and the world is geared very much towards neurotypical ways of working and thinking. But effectively, there are different areas that autistic people tend to have differences in. Things around communication styles, adhering to social norms, how we receive and how we process information, and things around executive function. And it's a spectrum. It's a huge spectrum. It's not a linear thing where people are less autistic or more autistic. There are lots of different aspects to being autistic. And every single autistic person will be different and have both different challenges and different strengths. I think sometimes people do feel, well, everyone's got some form of or some level of autism. Is it possible for everyone to have some kind of percentage for us all to be on a scale, supposed to speak? Or are there definite qualifiers that make someone autistic? In my opinion, people are either autistic or not. I hear quite often people will say things like, well, everybody's a little bit autistic. And it's actually Mm. quite an invalidating thing to say to an autistic person because there's very clear things that say we either struggle with or we have strengths in particular areas. And I think within that spectrum, if you are autistic, there are very varying degrees of things that you can do well and things that you will find hard. I struggle to believe that everybody has a little bit of autism in them. I think Mm. it's quite a clear cut separation for me. And, you know, through my journey of particularly as a late diagnosed autistic person, when I've talked more openly with neurotypical people, it's clear to Mm. me that it's very difficult for them to understand some of the things that myself and other autistic people will tend to find hard or things that we can do. You've mentioned that you've had a late diagnosis. What Mm. made you want to test? And I'm not sure whether you were specifically looking to test for autism in particular, but what made you decide, okay, I'm going to see someone to better understand why I approach things this way? What led to that? 
So if I tell you a little bit more about my personal journey, because we touched mm. more on my professional journey. Again, yeah. there's, there's so much to say that it's hard to say it succinctly. But I started becoming fascinated about autism about 20 years or so ago through discovering parts about it through my linguistics degree. One of the topics that we covered was how autistic people tend to communicate differently. And I started researching it very deeply at that time. And I ended up being so passionate about it that I wrote my final year thesis all around how autism can affect communication. Communication. Now, at that time, fortunately, the world has changed a lot since then, but at that time, most of the information that was readily available to me was content that was written by neurotypical medical professionals, researchers, scientists, etc. And that led to me having an understanding of what I thought autism was that's actually quite different from what I know now. And I spent 10 to 15 years or so just continuing to research and being fascinated by it. And then about 12 years ago, I had a son called Dalton who it was quite clear quite early on that he was autistic and some of the traits that he had fitted some of those stereotypical information sources that I had read as a lot of those are based on particularly young white males and from that point on my passion really turned sort of a different corner in that I started to to become quite obsessed really about reading about autism from an autistic perspective so it really shifted from looking at mainstream content to reading all about autism from autistic people and this is where I started to go through the journey of unlearning everything that I'd learned over those 10-15 years that had preceded that. And then the more I read, the more I felt that I identified with the things that I was reading and started to join a number of sort of online social communities and particularly started to hear and read and learn more about autism in women, which can be really quite different from autism in men in terms of how it presents itself. So even though some of the struggles and the strengths are similar, the way that women will come across to others, because we tend to mask a lot more is quite different and actually in my household and in my work most of the autistic people that I know are men and I'm quite different to some of those right so it didn't even occur to me that I might also be autistic at all and the the, tr- the trigger point for that was about a year ago now from one of those online communities I ended up attending a conference that was really geared towards autistic women met a number of other autistic women and had this absolute euphoric light bulb moment I guess of thinking aha mm-hmm. We are the same. Um, I'm just like you. And it was quite a shock, if I'm honest. And it Mm. just suddenly hit me. The penny dropped. And that was the moment where everything really changed for me. So from that point of realisation, I ended up feeling the need to get diagnosed, partly just to validate my own suspicions. And partly because I'd been talking about autism for so long as a neurotypical advocate, I needed something just to help other people understand that it was a real thing and I wasn't making it up. You know, again, a little bit of that imposter syndrome of, you know, am I jumping on the bandwagon of it? And so I ended up going down a private route quite quickly after that. It felt necessary for me to get that validated quite soon. And that process was relatively quick. And within about six weeks, I had the diagnosis. Something that is quite interesting is the difference or the differences that there can be between men and women when it comes to autism. And I know not everyone's the same and different people Mm. will exhibit different things regardless of gender. But are you able to highlight why perhaps women either aren't being diagnosed or they're, they're not aware of it initially? You know, what are some of the differences there? Mm. So I think there's a couple of reasons, right? I think primarily most of the content that is available and most of the diagnostic criteria that was created for the assessments is based on research of mostly white boys. 
Okay. So a lot of people who don't fit that demographic have struggled to be recognised as autistic. The main element that I think is different with women is that we tend to mask a lot more. I mean, so much so that I didn't realise I was doing it, which is one of the things that came as a complete shock to me is that I had no idea I was masking. I just knew that I found certain things difficult. Yeah. So we tend to be more aware of the need to conform to some of the societal norms, even though that's something that I've personally always found quite difficult. And there are certain things that tend to be particularly different in in women. And and I think this comes from sort of thinking more about how we're perceived is the facial expressions thing is something that a lot of women will, with or late diagnosed, particularly autism, will talk about in that the facial expressions will quite often be a mismatch to how we're feeling and a mismatch to the situation. And they can take other people by surprise and lead to a Mm. lot of misunderstandings and such and fundamentally a lot of the things that we're experiencing are the same but the way that we're trying to suppress them and mask them in public and with others is it can be quite different now that makes sense and I think we all do this regardless of gender but I do feel there is this pressure for women to present themselves in a certain way in order to be perceived even as women (laughs) full stop and anything that kind of falls outside of that or deviates puts our womanhood in question hence the extra masking regardless Mm. of what the personal scenario is but yeah Mm. that makes sense And I know you mentioned that there are some negatives and positives when it comes to being autistic. What would you say some of the negatives are, whether that's in your personal or professional life? So a lot of the things that autistic people experience, I think, come with both good and bad side effects, right? There there are some I would say that are just mostly bad or mostly good, but in the main, I'd say they come with both. So I think it would be useful for me to talk about some of the things that are particularly prevalent in my life, right? So Mm. um, when I think about the ways that it has affected me every day from birth, really, the biggest impact on me by far and away is burnout. I cannot remember a single time in my life where I've not been extraordinarily tired whenever anybody asks me how I am the only way I know how to answer that is I'm really tired also because I only know how to answer very truthfully and a comfortable answering very truth and over the years I started to realize that people find that answer quite weary and draining because it's always the same and so then I've learned to say things like yes good thank you I'm fine and when I when I'm actually not feeling fine at all so I'm always tired and until the late diagnosis I had absolutely no idea why I felt that way or that other people did not feel that way and actually one of the things that I asked some of my neurotypical friends and colleagues when I did get diagnosed was you know do you not feel tired every single day and they were like of course not we feel fine some days tired others and I found that quite hard to understand because I never don't feel tired so one of the main things for me is this cycle of hyper focus and burnout so the way that my brain works the neural pathways are very open um, and when I get into a task I get very deeply into a task I'm not great at multitasking so I will tend to focus fully and very deeply for long periods of time to the point where if I need to stop or want to stop, I can't really. It's very difficult to stop. So it's not even just about being able to hyperfocus. It's about the inability to really stop hyperfocusing. And whilst that comes with a lot of benefits, right, in terms of the huge amount of things I can get done in a short amount of time, it's very exhausting. So if I have a long period of hyperfocus and then I'm in a situation where I'm unable to rest and have to go straight into something else, 
which could be a social thing, it could be a work task that I need to do, then that cycle of burnout and exhaustion will build up over time where it's quite difficult to recover from it. So I think that's one of the main ways that it has affected me in my life and that's led to years of misdiagnoses around things like chronic fatigue syndrome, allergies, all sorts of different things. The other thing I would say that's particularly prevalent for me is my hypersensitivity to sound. I think it's really important to try to describe this because people tend to think this is about volume and it isn't really about volume. Volume is a problem but actually what it's really about is the inability to filter out any kind of sound. So I hear everything with absolute equal priority. If I'm in the workplace and somebody's typing on their keyboard several desk banks away and imagine if you're in a big open plan office that's potentially 50 to 100 different people typing on their keyboard having conversations. It might be raining outside, there might be a police siren going past. All of these things hit me with equal priority and it's very very difficult for me to focus on both what I'm doing and the conversation that I'm in. So particularly in a social environment, in a busy and noisy environment with a lot of people, the effort I have to expend to stay in the conversation and really be in it, which is important to me to do, is exhausting. And that tends to hit me afterwards because I'm able to suppress it and mask it and kind of get through it. So that's one of the other main ways. The other things, particularly when in the company of others, is having to really pay attention to suppressing my stims. So I have a few twitches and things that other people will find quite unusual and I'm aware that they will find them quite unusual. So I have to work really hard to mask those. And that's the same with things like facial expressions. I've had a lifetime of people telling me to cheer up, looking so grumpy, when actually I'm feeling absolutely fine. And of course then I feel a little bit grumpy after I'm repeatedly told Mm. I look grumpy. When I'm in public and I notice myself doing this more and more now, particularly in the professional environment, I have to force myself to smile to the point where my cheeks hurt. Doing that for long periods of time can be really quite exhausting for me. Yeah. So other things that I find really hard, particularly in the workplace, I really struggle in quite highly political environments. I have an overwhelming need for truth and justice. I'm a very fact-based person. And when I'm working in situations where there's a lot of untruths or false narratives, those kind of things, I find it very, very, very difficult to reconcile that in my brain. You know, it's been a struggle to the point where I've left jobs because of it. You know, I'm very lucky and fortunate that I work in a place now where that's not the case. And it's very open, inclusive, truthful, honest, all of those things but it hasn't always been the case so that's been difficult to deal with and so with all of those things I think burnout is huge but there's also you know sort of lifetime of feeling a little bit misunderstood a little bit broken a little bit confused about why I struggle with certain things when other people seem to find them quite easy and ultimately all of those things can lead to people feeling quite depressed and quite Mm. anxious I don't get a lot of sleep I worry about things a lot and yet when I'm working particularly because of the role I do I have to suck it all up put on a brain face be a rock to everybody and you know it it can be hard sometimes yeah that sounds exhausting it just sounds like a lot of work even before you start to do standard work and even just to be able to push through that work as well having to manage all these sides of yourself and then being conscious of how you're being perceived that just really sounds exhausting so what would you say some of the positives are So there are lots of positives as well, right? And one of the questions I've been asked since the diagnosis is, if you you could wave a magic wand and take it all away tomorrow, would you do 
do that? And the answer is a big fat hell no, because <laughs> good. <laughs> there are so many things that I can do that I know that a lot of other people can't do because I'm autistic, not in spite of being autistic. And mm. I can't imagine how it would feel to live without being able to do these things, right? And mm. I actually feel quite sorry for other people who can't do some of the things <laughs> that I can do. And, you know, the, the, the fact that I can do those things, I haven't really been able to give myself the credit and permission to celebrate those things until quite recently because I didn't realize that not everybody could do those things. So if I talk about what some of those things are, one of the biggest myths and sort of misinformation around autism is is a lack of empathy. It couldn't be more wrong in that most autistic people feel such a strong, deep sense of empathy that for some people, they can actually shut down because it's they're feeling it so deeply and it can appear to be a lack of empathy when actually it's just a coping mechanism for how to deal with this extraordinary amount of empathy. Right. Again, that can be a difficult thing. So there's a lot of news items that I physically can't watch because it affects me too deeply. I can't think about my father dying because it affects me too deeply. But even my friends and colleagues, when they're talking about their situations, I find it so hard to not take on their pain and their grief. But from a positive aspect, what that also means is that I can very quickly and easily put myself in other people's situations. So particularly when it comes to things like managing teams, leading departments, driving change, organising events. So both personal and professional events. I've always been incredibly good at thinking about all of the different perspectives from every kind of audience member without really having to try. Right? It's just kind of in my brain and I can hold that information there, which means that I can organise things and lead things that will tend to get the best possible situation situation that there is and that's something that I really value being able to do and I think it helps me to be a good manager to people and a good friend to people and a good organizer of events etc I can hold an enormous amount of information in my brain and I will deeply research things right to the point where this is one of the reasons why I have very little sleep because I'll find myself at 2 a.m thinking oh, I wonder if snails have tongues and then no. three hours will pass and I've found out that not only do snails have tongues they have teeth as well and things like oh that right? they, this happens <laughs> to me all the time but what it means is when I'm particularly in a work environment where there's a topic that I need to know about I will research it very quickly and very deeply and I'm able to hold all of that information pull it all together figure out how it all kind of impacts each other without really having to try it just sort of happens if I let it noodle around in my brain and then I can put something together that can share that very easily in, in a consumable fashion for others um, so that's something that I'm particularly proud of and the, the other thing I'm able to do is I'm in extraordinarily organised and I kind of have to be because I'm not good at multitasking. So I'm a very single threaded but very deep worker rather than a managing lots of things all at the same time. But it means that, that whether this is autism or just me, I don't know. But I've become incredibly organised both with my own work and other people's work and what's going on for my son's school and all of the different things that I need to manage, which makes me you know, very reliable, very consistent. People tend to enjoy working with me because I always get back to them all of those that you would have experienced when we were working on recruitment together yeah I've seen that exactly and that's something that is not difficult for me right it's, it's very mm. natural for me to be highly organized so I value those things yeah, no, I remember when we were working together, it was a breath of fresh air working with you. But I think even more importantly, it was so interesting seeing your team interact with you because you were so organized, because you had a plan and the plan made sense. Everyone was at ease. So regardless mm -hmm. of what the workload was or anything like that, 
everyone genuinely enjoyed their jobs. They knew their purpose. They understood it. And it just meant that they could get on with things. It's probably one of the only times I've seen a team at ease, genuinely. Mm. What you maybe didn't fully realize was super important. Maybe you do it more so for yourself because that's the way that you work. But the impact that it has on other people is so positive and it genuinely does impact their experiences in their roles as well. So I think these are all very strong traits. You're amazing. Thank you. Really lovely to hear. And I think one additional thing I forgot to mention, which I think ties into what you just said there, is that yeah. this need for truth, and you know, although that comes with struggles at times, it also means that I'm incredibly open, honest, and transparent with my team. There's very little I can't or won't tell them. And so it means that people know that when I'm talking to them, there is no bullshit. There's no hidden intentions. There's nothing left unsaid. And that also helps people to feel at ease, right? Because yeah. they don't have to worry about what is it that Natalie's not telling us about or what's happening because there isn't anything I I will tell it like it is it might not always be easy to hear but at least you know where you stand yeah yeah absolutely what are some of the things that we can do non-autistic people can do at home or at work to accommodate autism This is one where, because everybody is quite different, that experiences things within the autistic spectrum, it's quite difficult to put together consistent policies or processes that will feel naturally inclusive and accommodating to everybody. So one of the most important things that people can do in their personal professional lives is to first of all, just be aware that people have different ways of approaching situations and different ways of processing information. So learning about not just autism, ADHD, other neurological differences. So just, just, to start to be aware of some of the ways that people can experience things and and what you might see when you're interacting with them. But it's quite difficult because a lot of people who are autistic or have other neurodivergent brain types will not always necessarily know themselves that they are. And therefore, they may not be able to come forward and tell you quite comfortably, this is something that I find difficult or this would be an accommodation that would help. So I think as managers, leaders, friends, peers, what's really important to do is to keep asking that question you have a think about the ways that your processes fit together at work and the ways that you approach social situations with people again professional or non and just think about how could we make that more accommodating or how can I open the floor to allow people to feel comfortable to say what they need because people won't say what they need if they feel like they're not in a safe space to do so so just having these kind of conversations and talking about these kind of things in the workplace particularly will start to open some doors for people but particularly it's about asking right I I love it when people say to me what would work best for you or does this process work for you how could we change it that would make you feel more accommodated and you can do that quite easily across entire organizations you can create ways of asking for feedback and saying hey what are the things right now that aren't working for you well what changes would you like to make Um, and it's things that people don't tend to do unless somebody escalates it forward and that really puts the onus on the people who are different to do that we've already got an awful lot of other stuff that we're trying to deal with at the same time and it it shouldn't be that way it should be a a more of a two-way conversation I feel I guess to highlight those who perhaps are living a life undiagnosed as organizations or as employers and as family members where there is no diagnosis for now but we do feel you know we need to give this person a bit of grace because they've got this quirk or there's this thing that they do in order to process a task that they need to do or they work in this way i.e. you need to give explicit information in order for them to get the task done and they will do it but 
what what do we need to do or change in our mindset or approach to ensure that regardless of us knowing a diagnosis or not, people are being catered to? Because I think when someone is not diagnosed, we don't necessarily ask the question, what do you need? How do we accommodate you? I feel like there needs to be just a general rehaul as to how we see each other full stop to ensure Mm -hmm. that everybody is accommodated regardless of any known differences. It's a meaty topic and a very difficult one to solve quickly, right? And I think the only way to really make the kind of steps in that direction that that we really need to make is to keep talking about it and to give all of the different types of people, whether it be a neurological variation or a physical difference or whatever it is that people are experiencing, to just keep amplifying those voices, right? To get like you're doing now, giving people a platform to talk about it and to normalise it. I think that's the thing that's really important to do. It shouldn't be a stigmatised and difficult topic to discuss. And I know from my personal experience that when I first started to share with people that I was autistic, I had a whole range of reactions to it. And some of those were very positive, some of those were very negative. And you could see that even though people were trying to respond in the most correct way, there were a lot of reactions that I found quite offensive and I found quite insulting and quite belittling and patronising and those kind of things where it shouldn't feel that way. And I think whilst that's the case, people will struggle to talk about it openly Mm. I'm still learning that it's easier for me to talk about what I need rather than the fact that I'm autistic because that just comes with this immediate stigma so I think the awareness is so important but it doesn't stop there the awareness is the first part and I don't think you can have acceptance without having awareness first but the acceptance and the willingness to think about all types of different people and the experiences they have and be accommodating it's something that you have to really practice thinking about all the time because your natural way of being will be to you know assume that everybody thinks the same way that you do and to naturally gravitate towards other people they're like yourself we all do that I naturally gravitate towards other autistic people particularly you know and have done my whole life without even knowing that that's what I was doing everybody else just thought they were the oddballs um, and, the, and, the, and the weirdos at school and at workplaces but I I found them really interesting and I found them really funny and I found that we just got each other so I think really all we can do is just keep learning and just keep learning from the people who are experiencing that rather than from medical professionals and scientists mm. and researchers who haven't actually experienced it for themselves. Very true. Very, very true. Do you think neurological testing should become mandatory and just part of regular healthcare? So I don't think it should be mandatory, but I think it should be accessible, which is a very different thing, right? So I'm conscious that we have to be pragmatic about the amount of budget that's available in the NHS and those kind of things, but it shouldn't be as difficult as it is at the moment. In order for people to be diagnosed or have access to the information or support via the NHS can take several years, depending on Mm. your location. And and that's far too long, particularly for children. There's, you know, in order to get the accommodations that you need and access to the support facilities that to be available at schools you have to have that diagnosis and I've experienced this with my son in just saying we know he's autistic is not enough we have to have a piece of paper that proves and demonstrates that he really is which I find bizarre I don't think it should be necessary so then there has to be a couple of things one is access to the information so that people can very readily and freely in their own time and comfort from their own home learn a lot more about what being autistic means and looks like Mm. and feels like but at the point where you know people will want to seek something more formal and more professional in terms of support or a Mm. diagnosis it should be very easy to do that in the same way that it would for a physical disability or, or any other kind of challenge that you're going through and it isn't accessible so a huge number of people simply cannot get diagnosed because it 
costs thousands of pounds to do it privately, or it will take many years. And neither of those two options are very easy to swallow. Yeah, I mean, even when I think of it off the top of my head, if I did want to see someone, I don't even know where I would go. The fact that I can't think straight away of where I would go is a problem. That makes sense, I think, around access um, being Mm. really the most important thing. I completely agree with you. I, I don't think that in order to accommodate people and the way that they work and the way that they work best, there always necessarily needs to be some kind of certification. So on that as well, how important is it to even know So I think this is a great question that has quite a few different angles to it. So I I want to explore some of those. So there's two different parts, I think, for being neurologically different, right? And one is the moment that you realise and one is the moment that you choose to get diagnosed if that's the route that you go down. The diagnosis piece, it will be very different for different people, whether that's something that they need to do. I think particularly for children to get access to certain support that they may need and accommodation for things like exams and school trips and those kind of things it is critical unfortunately to have that diagnosis so I think you have to put a lot of thought into why do I feel that I need that diagnosis in adult life access to things there are still some accommodations that you can get with a diagnosis but not so many the real accommodations come with the realization part and one of the two things is a deliberate conscious choice and one of them is almost like an accident the the realization part is often a oh i had no idea kind of moment and then and then there's a conscious choice about well do i feel like i need to get this formal certification now that i know what i know in terms of do, do we need to know do we benefit from knowing i, I think for me the answer is an over overwhelming yes from all of the things that I've seen and the things I've experienced myself from particularly late diagnosed people my focus has mostly been learning from late diagnosed women we've experienced a lifetime of feeling confusingly broken not really understanding why we're so tired all of the time not understanding why we find certain things difficult and that leads to a lot of anxiety and depression and confusion and little sleep and all of those things that I've talked about before and if I had known when I was a child I think I would have had a very different life now whether that would have been a better one it is impossible to say but I certainly wouldn't have spent so long feeling broken and quite alone actually so it's not just about feeling broken it's about feeling like no one else in the world really truly understands what you're going through so I would much prefer to have known however the the interesting thing about that is that at the time when I was growing up which was in the 80s there was such a heavy stigma around being autistic that I you know I I often wonder would that have actually made my life a lot more difficult as a child Mm. and Mm. a student growing up in my teens and such would that have caused me to be ostracized and I don't know I fear it would so in some ways given how little society knew at that time I think it would have been a lot harder and I think the world's moved on a lot which is amazing it's it's great to see the progress that we've made and I think we can talk about it without so much of that stigma now but in the main from the way the world is right now I think it's critical to know because it's really difficult to proactively think about the accommodations that you may need without really understanding your situation and and also knowing that you're not alone so once you have that realization my um, affinity with other people in these online groups of which I've never met these people but you feel this incredible connection and bond with people who truly understand what you're going through you learn from them you share um, teach them various things and and it's lovely to feel like you've kind of found your people And, and if you don't know then it's quite difficult for you to know where to find those people. 
So before we spoke, I decided to try and do a little bit of research when looking into diagnosis such as autism, ADHD. I sometimes felt uncomfortable with some of the language being used. So for instance, things like symptoms, disorder, they all just feel very negative. I don't know, am I being overly sensitive or is it right to perceive the difference in this way? to use such language. Yeah, you're not being oversensitive at all. I think the language that's used around autism and other neurological variations, particularly in the diagnostic criteria and the, the medical research and scientific articles is really damaging the autistic community, hugely damaging. And it's the main thing that feeds into the stigmas and the fact that people will find it very difficult to talk about and the stereotypes, etc. It's referred to in those diagnostic manuals as a disorder and a condition. Mm. Yeah. and a syndrome and things that are incredibly negative when in reality it is quite simply a different way of processing information that has good and bad side effects right it's as simple as that and as we talked about before that comes with lots of strengths and lots of challenges and such but the language is really damaging and it's quite difficult for the autistic community to do anything about that so you know there's various parts of it that are hard the the disorder condition kind of language is very damaging to hear there's things around the use of functioning terms so high functioning, low functioning is quite damaging yes, as well to yes, the autistic yeah. community because it sort of minimises people. And actually, it's more about the perception than what people's struggles actually are. So people will often talk about high functioning individuals because they're a little bit more neurotypical in how they're being perceived. And actually, that's not necessarily the case. It's about how well you're able to mask your situation and how well you can suppress, etc. And, and then people refer to low functioning people, which is quite a divisive thing to do. And it lends weight to these stereotypes and the stigma around people who just wouldn't be able to function in life when actually it is difficult to function in a neurotypical world, but it shouldn't be that way. There are issues with terms like Asperger's, which is, is something that came as a real shock to me when doing my deep research only a few years ago, in fact, around links with Nazi times euthanasia, effectively. Oh. And so it's a term that is quite triggering for a lot of autistic people. And yet there are lots of people who use that term. And to be clear, if people want to use that term about themselves, that's absolutely fine and valid. Mm. And people should be able to refer to themselves and what they experience however they want. But there are certain things where when you, when you look into them, it's quite shocking, actually, where some of these terms have come from. From. The question is often then, well, well, how should we talk about this? And it's really simple. The safest thing to do by far and the thing that most of people in the autistic community will be happy with is just to call us autistic. They're okay. very heavy preferences for identity first language over person first language. Mm. So what I mean by that is that we would prefer to be called autistic people rather than a person with autism. This implies that it's some something that you can separate yourself from or a temporary passing condition when it's, it's our everything. It's our brain type. It consumes everything about how we are and how we experience absolutely everything. And it's not an offensive term to you know people will often I've noticed say to me things like you're on the spectrum because they feel like saying that I'm autistic might be a dirty word for me and and it isn't I'd rather people were actually just very direct and factual about it as most of the autistic community are quite heavy fact-based individuals just call it what it is mm, yeah that's the safest and most comfortable way to refer to it is just to call it autistic and what do non-autistic people need to know or be aware of when interacting with anyone who is autistic? So I think the main things that I would love people to take away from you know, from this podcast and from listening to other autistic people is that it's very different to the stereotypes that people have traditionally thought about when thinking about autistic people, that yeah. it's a massive spectrum and that people are very different. 
it's absolutely okay to not always get it right. And it's okay to ask. And it's okay to not know everything about it. But we really appreciate it when people ask us about it and think and reflect on what we've said about the accommodations that we've need and be flexible, even if they're things that seem very unusual to them. So being able to just have that conversation, feeling heard, having a voice, right? Not having non-autistic people speak over us about what our challenges and experiences might be like. That's something that is particularly frustrating. So just having a general openness. And I think this honestly applies to everybody, all different types of people, just being aware that different people have different challenges and different strengths and that it's okay to have that conversation and it's okay to get it wrong and just to, to continue to learn and listen from each other. That would be the world I would love to see in the future for my child, for his children, is just to be able to grow up and have a very frank and open conversation about how we work, how we experience things, and it and it be okay. So what has life been like, you know, just as a final question, what has life been like since diagnosis? It's a really interesting question, right? Because when I first had that realisation moment that I referred to earlier, I had this brief period of, of like, I can only describe it as euphoria, really, where mm. I was like, ah, oh, this massive penny dropped. And I thought, yeah, ta-da, now everything <laughs> makes sense. And my life is suddenly going to get better and I'm not going to feel tired all the time anymore. Mm. And unfortunately, that has not been the case. Bear in mind, this is relatively fresh for me. So I'm, I'm about a, y- a year on from that realisation right now the period that followed the realization what you tend to do is replay your entire life through this new lens and all of the situations that have happened that have been confusing which all suddenly start to make sense and that's great and then you start to think a lot more proactively about the kind of boundaries that you need to put in place to make your life feel more manageable and that's all been positive right so I'm, I'm able to appreciate the strengths I have more because I realize now that lots of people can't do those things that I can do and that's great I'm able to ask much more freely and easily for accommodations that I need and I've experimented with that a lot in the last year where I started off telling anyone who'd listen hey I'm autistic look at me and that that didn't go so well sometimes so now I focus more on saying look the way we're approaching this situation it doesn't work well for me it doesn't work mm. well for the way my brain works but here's how we could make it more open and inclusive and you know we have to do those things in a way that doesn't damage other people as well mm. it's really important to say that it, there's not an expectation that the entire world fits exactly around the way an autistic person's brain works but there are lots of ways to make it very open and inclusive for everybody that are quite easy to do so some aspects of that have been good but there has been some very difficult aspects as well a few key things have happened and actually it was only by lurking and and reaching out in these online social communities that I referred to that I've been able to make sense of certain things and feel less alone so one of the main things that happened when I first realized was I became acutely aware of the challenges right so up until Mm. that point there were a lot of things that I was able to just grin and bear it suck it up continue on with it because everybody else seemed to find it okay and whilst that led to me feeling quite tired it also meant that I was able to get through life without constantly feeling a little bit anxious and a little bit a little bit broken really and since then particularly with the sound and with the fact that I need a little bit of processing time when receiving information and that's become very acute for me it almost feels exaggerated and that's quite a common thing that I've heard other late diagnosed autistic people talk about right 
so the realization of those things that's been hard and then the other thing is that I've become a lot more aware of my the things I used to mask so things like my stims and my facial expressions right I am so acutely aware now of how miserable I look (laughs) all of the time that it's like just constantly on my mind it's interesting particularly on virtual meetings as well with cameras on I am so conscious of how miserable I look and people often call it out in meetings by the way this happens to me all the time where they're like so inappropriate what Natalie looks Natalie looks really miserable today. And I'm focusing on it so much that it's actually really difficult to concentrate on what's being said. So I think that awareness of the fact that I am different has been hard, right? And so that has its own levels of burnout and consequences where the kind of balance of the things that I've now find easier, but there are other things that I find harder now. And on balance, I feel just as burnt out as I was before, right? And that's been really disappointing. But you also go through this period genuinely of grieving. Mm. Grieve for the child that you thought you were and the challenges that you had without knowing and all of the times that you felt broken and lonely. Um, You kind of want to reach out and give your five-year-old self a massive hug and say, you know, it's okay that you feel that way. And you have a lot of grief and that takes time to work through, right? So what what I'm learning from talking to lots of other people, particularly late diagnosed women, is that it's a journey. It's a massive journey and it's not one that will get fixed overnight, Right. So I feel like I'm starting to come to a point where I'm much more comfortable about it and doing things like this and talking about it openly helps me. And I think it helps the rest of the community as well to feel more comfortable talking about it. But I'm by no means out the other side. And I think it might take several years. I might never feel completely comfortable with the situation, but you have to try and you have to press on. It's not a silver bullet finding out. It really isn't. And I think it's something to be aware of. You know, and you don't make that conscious choice of realising, as I say, that will happen or it won't and when you do it's not going to be a straightforward path there's going to be some times where it's very difficult and I had a lot of tears and difficult moments when I first found out and just a lot of confusion and and felt probably more alone in that period the first few weeks that followed than I ever had in my life which was very hard to go through especially when you're in a leadership role in the workplace where you really need to look like you you got your shit together all the time and often often I really I really don't (laughs) is the truth I really appreciate, you know, your openness and transparency on that, because I think this is the side that we don't always hear of. I think it's also important to understand that it's not easy taking a diagnosis on. It's not Mm -hmm. simply a label. It does have real impact in both positive and negative ways. The wonderful thing about the conversation today is that I feel like we're humanizing what has kind of felt like a label. We do need more conversations like this. This is what's going to create greater understanding overall. So I really do appreciate you being so open and taking the time to talk to me about being an autistic person but not just that your personal experience oh thank you I really appreciate you wanting to have this conversation and helping us to amplify our voices because that is so important to do and you know the, the more advocates we have the more champions we have the better so thank you to you too pleasure an absolute pleasure and I'm also going to share the slides that you created as well alongside this so that people can take the time to read up on all the information that you shared because it really is a brilliant deck thank you so much Natalie for spending this time with us I really appreciate it it's been a wonderful conversation I've learned so much more again and I'm sure a lot of people will take a lot away from this conversation so thank you for joining us today on a human perspective thank you so much for having me 